First John, the book of First John in the New Testament, which you'll find just shortly after the letter to the Hebrews and before the book of Revelation. We are reading in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, the second time that we are reading these three verses together. First John 2, verses 15 through 17 where John writes, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Thanks be to God once more for this passage from his own word. Now, last Sunday evening, as many of you will recall, we began together a study of these three verses from 1 John chapter 2 on the subject of the Christian and the world. And I reminded you that John has been laying out the marks of a Christian, a true Christian, in a very clear and specific manner in the first and second uh, of the chapters of this book that we are studying together on these Sunday evenings. And prior to this passage, John had given to us three distinguishing marks of the true Christian that we might know whether we ourselves who profess the name of Christ are truly in Christ. He had said that one of those marks is confessing our sins to God and not hiding them. And that the second mark is that we willingly and lovingly keep the commandments of God. That we are able to say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. And that the third mark of the Christian is that he lives in love with his brethren. And the man or woman who professes to be a Christian but in whose heart there dwells hate of one another cannot possibly be walking in the light and cannot possibly be the genuine article. Now to these three tests of confessing our sins and keeping the commandments of God and loving the brethren, we saw last Sunday evening that John the Apostle uh, adds the fourth test that is brought before us in these three searching verses. The Christian is also someone who does not love the world. Now you will recall that All we did together last Sunday evening, last Lord's Day, was to define the world positively what it is, the organized kingdom of evil that is hostile to God. And negatively, we went on to define it in still greater detail as to what it is not. And you will recall that we said last Sunday evening it is not the world of created things around us. It's not the world of material things. It's not the world of non-Christian people 
who surround us constantly in our workplaces and sometimes in our homes. It's not, moreover, the world of secular vocations. John is not forbidding us to practice a trade or vocation in this world. And I reminded you that some of the most significant service in the Bible was rendered by men in secular positions, such as Nehemiah, the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, or Daniel, the prime minister to a great heathen monarch and emperor. And, of course, it is not finally the avoidance of recreation or pleasure in any lawful sense. And we concluded with the note of the necessity to understand the definition of the world. Because if we make it too broad, then we ourselves become narrow and legalistic in our living and our view. Touch not, taste not, handle not, lest we become defiled when in fact our definition of the world has become far too unscripturally broad. And lest, on the other hand, we make it too narrow and define it in distinctive things and only a few of those things that results in living the Christian life in a very worldly manner indeed. And like so much scriptural truth, there is a narrow and a straight path that we are to follow in our understanding of this commandment of John, do not love the world or anything in the world. Now that's where we left off last Sunday evening with the definition of the world both positively and negatively seen. And we come tonight to the second and third points of this exposition that we did not have time for last Lord's Day, that you notice are discerning the world, and then as we draw to a conclusion a little later on, deliverance from the world. Now I want you then to look with me at the second of these things that John brings to us, and it begins at the middle of verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now we've arrived then at the point where we are now able to discern what danger the Apostle John is warning us against. For everything in the world, which he then specifies in a threefold way, this is what we are to avoid. Now look with me at verse 16, and you will notice something that I think is obvious and shines out to us from the text, that what John is warning against, beloved, is not the external things at all that are out there, but things that are inward in our own lives and in our own fallen nature. Do you see what I mean? 
I remind you of the negatives last Sunday evening. The world is not the world of created things or material things or non-Christian people or legitimate and lawful recreations and pleasures. It's not in externals at all. The warning does not apply to these things primarily. But the proof that it is internal, the world inside us, if you like, is in the very phraseology that the apostle uses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verse 16. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and what the King James Version calls the pride of life. Now, what are these things? They're not out there. They're inward and they are dispositions. Now there is nothing wrong with the body as we've seen. There's nothing wrong with the eyes. There's nothing wrong with life itself. Correctly understood. But the point that John is making is there is a world within us that reacts to the world outside us with the wrong focus because of our fallen nature and our sinfulness that puts those things outside us in a wrong perspective. And it is the attitude of pride and self-sufficiency and obsession with things that have got out of focus so that we make little gods of them and begin to bow down before them and worship them and serve them and love them instead of the love of the Father being in us. Now that is what he is warning us of. Now let me say to you as a pastor, very rarely in my experience is the problem with the thing itself, the car, or the holiday, or the better position that we desire, or whatever it might be, or money, the love of which is the root of all evil. Very rarely is the problem with the thing itself, but the problem is when the world of external things becomes out of perspective, and out of proportion, and out of place in a man or a woman, or a child's life in these three ways that John goes on now to explain to us. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now I want you to look at these three things, however quickly with me this evening. They're very vital and very important. But before we do so, let me remind you of the connection of verse 16 with that much earlier book, the book of Genesis, and chapter 3 of that book in particular. You know, it's very interesting and very illuminatory if we remember that what John is giving to us here is in fact only a reflection of the state into which man fell in Genesis chapter 3. That's the root of all this problem of the world. That marked the beginning of the rebellious kingdom of the world that we are to avoid. And it was based on the same three evil principles that John adverts to here. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now what do I mean 
Do you remember when Satan came into the garden and tempted Eve? He began by saying to her, Look at the tree. Has God really forbidden you to eat of such beautiful and luscious fruit? He's really depriving you of something that is your right, that will make you a better man and a better woman if you take that fruit and disobey God. And she looked at it, and she saw that the fruit was good to eat, and the tree was something to be desired to make one wise, and so on. Now the principles that John adverts to here are there in Genesis 3. Do you remember those threefold principles in that account of the fall? That men were to seek and follow and indulge their appetites. This was to be the ruling passion that would make a fallen world turn around on its axis. And it's the lust of the flesh. She saw that it was good for food. And then the second principle in Genesis 3 was that men were to seek to gain possession of all that they desired. She saw that it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. The lust of the eyes, temptation coming in through eye gate to her and her husband's destruction. And then the third principle was that men were to seek a name for themselves, a position and an authority and an exaltation. And this is what John refers to as the pride of life, where they put themselves even above the command and the goodwill of God for their well-being. We know better than he does. Now, isn't it interesting but this is still the root danger that John warns us of when he comes to Christians and says, do not love the world or anything in the world. Well, look with me then at these three principles quite quickly this evening. The lust of the flesh, or what the New International Version calls the cravings of sinful nature. Now, I surely don't need to remind you this evening that the flesh in the New Testament, and as used by the Apostle Paul, for instance, in Romans 8, is the description of that fallen nature that is in opposition to God, that desires the unlawful things. And in Romans 8, Paul says the flesh lusts against the spirit, and that those that are in the flesh, that is, living in their unregenerate nature, cannot please God. And the essence of the flesh, beloved, from Genesis 3 onwards through Scripture, is that it desires the gratification of our fallen appetites. And its whole nature consists in an urge to gratify fallen and sinful desires. And you only need to look around and see how unbelieving and unregenerate men live and into your own heart in the worst manifestations when grace for a moment no longer reigns and controls but sin reasserts 
or attempts to reassert its dominion. And you see the debasing effect of sin upon legitimate appetites that God has created. For instance, you no longer use food as a means of life and a means of work, but it leads to gluttony. You no longer use sex in the God-appointed way that God has commanded within the confines of marriage as a holy and sacred and sacramental expression of the bond of union between the love of one man and one woman in a lifelong compact. But sex becomes an area that has no boundaries to it. The appetite must always be gratified by more and more illicit conduct. And whatever area of life you might want to look at, you see gluttony, you see drunkenness, you see illicit sex, you see sloth, and so we could go on and on and on. Men living their lives to consume their appetites upon selfish ends. Now that's what the flesh is the desire for unlawful indulgence. It's not that what is out there is wrong. It's the world inside me that's wrong. And as you read your New Testament, you see how temptation flourished in the ancient world. We think that we've got a hard time in this present ungodly age in which we live and we think the state of our society is terrible, and indeed it is terrible. But when you open the pages of the New Testament and read what it was like in Corinth, it was a very sink of iniquity without any restraint of Christian sanctions and Christian laws that at least have left us with a heritage of what is right and wrong. And you see what John was reminding these Christians of was a very serious danger indeed to their Christian life and profession as it still is. And as I've said to you, the amazing thing is that those New Testament churches sprang like a beautiful flower out of the filthy mud of Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi and all these other places that we are reading about in our Sunday morning study of the book of Acts are triumph to the grace of God, but the lust of the flesh was no longer dominant in their lives as it once, once had been when they lived as pagans. But look you, there is the lust of the eyes. Now what does John mean there in the middle of verse 16? Well, what he means is that we are stirred up by what we look at. You know, I think that unlike the Puritans of the 17th century, we are much less aware of the danger that Eygate poses to us. That sinful curiosity and interest in unlawful things becomes the invasion route for sin to enter our lives. And you know, it's not for nothing that Christians feel very strongly about the industry of pornography in spite of all the world's claims that this does no damage to human lives or to young people. What scripture teaches is that there is such a thing as the lust of the eyes. 
And when we begin to look at things that we should not look at, it is the invasion route for sin to enter and take us captive and have dominion over us. And the tragedy of millions of lives in the world today is adequate testimony to that truth. And it's very interesting as you read the annals of the early church's history that Tertullian, in commenting upon this passage, it was well known in the early church, reflects on the temptation of the circus and the amphitheater where you remember under the Romans, wild beasts fought against each other or against men. And this gory spectacle of violence and horror was evidently even a temptation for the Christian to go and watch. And Augustine, a little later in the fourth century, reflects that one of the great temptations that came to Christians through the lust of the eyes was a temptation to dabble in the magical arts, necromancy, and all these other things that are so prevalent in our world today. But what it always means is the danger of being captivated by the superficial and the outward show without ever inquiring into the true value of the things that we see. We are stirred up and stimulated in our fallen nature by what eye-gate brings into our minds. And so often we're bowled over, aren't we, by the appeal to the senses, the desire for wrong things, and we get them out of proportion, and it leads to a craving for the sensual. You know, you only need to look at your television screen, I would guess, for one minute on average, and you are being bombarded by the fallen world that is all around us that makes such an appeal to eye-gate that is sexual and sensual and so often depraved, and we become so used to it that you know some of us are no longer shocked. And that's a terrible state when society has come to that. Or you only need to lift up your eyes when you're driving on the roads around Jacksonville to the billboards with their exotic ladies and so forth. Or you only need to listen to radio programs apart from the Christian stations. And even there is the appeal over and over again to the senses until it's become an epidemic in our society, destroying the fabric of homes and families from the inside. Now, you see, this is what makes the world turn around. It loves these things. It craves after them. It follows them with zeal. The world lives for this. When you think of the world of material things, the new boat that you see advertised, the bigger car, the better job, the prestigious position in the company that I'm serving where my talents are not being recognized. And you know the whole of Hollywood's success is based upon this 16th verse of First John chapter 2, an appeal to the lust of the eyes, lusting after fleshly things. Do you see what I'm saying to you? Now, the third danger you notice here 
is what the NIV calls boasting of what he has and does. I prefer the old-fashioned King James rendering of the pride of life. And the NIV, I believe, in a number of places is in danger of putting in an interpretation that may be right but may also be wrong instead of staying more faithfully with the original Greek text of the Scripture. But here it is, fortunately, a good translation, the boasting of what he has and does, the boastful pride of life. Now, this is the third way in which the world is to be avoided, my dear friends. And the word for life in Greek is the word bios. There are a number of words for life, zoe is the most popular one. But here, bios is the word, of course, that gives us our word biological. We speak of the the biological study of life and so on. And probably what John's meaning in this phrase, the pride of life, is making a name for yourself, being a somebody. And this is the third area of danger as we live in this fallen world as Christian men and women. The desire of wanting to be recognized and acclaimed and accoladed because we are someone. And what he's referring and adverting to is the danger of position and status and prestige when this gets out of focus and out of proportion as it does in the world of unregenerate men. There's nothing wrong with position. There's nothing wrong with status. There's nothing wrong with a desire to be the best that I can be for truth and righteousness and thee. Even in the secular realm, the desire to achieve is not wrong as we have seen. But when it gets out of proportion and out of focus and becomes the thing in which we are obsessed and we love it more than we love God, it is a profound and deadly danger. Whether it is your career or your school marks or your marriage or whatever it is, the motivation comes in and drives us on and on and on. Now look you, who are the heroes today in our society? You know who they are. are They are those who have made it. Regardless of the besmirching of their characters in that progress to make it, the world gives all its accolades and acclaim to those who have made it to the top, whether it's in sport or in business or in politics or in whatever realm it is. That's where the world brings its garlands and offers its praise to the pride of life, to the pride of life, the boastful pride of life. And you see it, don't you, everywhere in the world of sports and in all these other areas that I've mentioned, the desire to impress those around us with what ultimately is superficial, whether it's rank, whether it's achievement on the athletic field, whether it's wealth that I've accumulated, whether it's the way I'm dressed, whether it's the academic degrees that I've got after my name, the boastful pride 
of life. And this too must not be the characteristic of the true Christian. You know, it's very interesting to me, and in studying a commentary on this passage, I dug up this information, that in Romans 1 verse 30, you find that the great apostle Paul mentions the pride of life as one of those characteristic sins of the world that is going to hell in a handcart. Do you remember that great description of unregenerate men through much of chapter 1 of the book of Romans? And you come to verse 30 and you read, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. And it's interesting too in 2 Timothy 3 verse 2, Again, the characteristic that Paul describes of men who are living in the last age is lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud and blasphemous and disobedient to parents. The pride of life is part of the very essence and nature of the unregenerate man's hostility to God and of the nature of sin itself. And you and I, if we are Christians, ought not to be like that. Now that brings me, as I begin to draw to a close, to the third point, and thank God, my friends in Christ this evening, there is a third point. The world is not only defined, not only discerned, but there is in our text the way of deliverance from it. Look at verse 15b, the second part of it, and then verse 17. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God, says Paul, lives forever. Now, as I said to you a moment ago, what we have considered so far cannot be the true characteristic of the Christian. What is the characteristic of the Christian as he lives in the midst of this ungodly world that is outside of him but also in his fallen nature within him as well? And the way in which he is delivered from it and the characteristics of his life in distinction from the life of the unregenerate man consists in two things. That in him is the love of God. In him, first of all, is a lifestyle that is not compatible with love for the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, it's as clear as daylight. It's crystal clear. You either love the world and all that it offers, or you love the Father. Because the world is rival to God for all of our lives. And there is a totally incompatible program, as we have seen, that the world brings and offers in verse 16. The lust of the flesh drawing us away. The lust of the eyes. The invasion route for temptation to lead us astray. The pride of life so that we begin to live for these things instead of love for God. And all of it is against God 
the ostentation of the rebellious human heart, the arrogance of unregenerate men. But love for God is the antithesis of this. If we had time this evening, it's such a rich study to see that fellowship with God is a fellowship of love, isn't it? If you're in fellowship with God this evening, it's a fellowship of love. You get this in the Old Testament, in the repetition of the law of God in the Shema of Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and with all thy mind. Why is it there? Because if that kind of love for God is in your heart, you've no place for love of anything else. That's why it's with all your heart and soul and might and strength. And you get it again and again in the New Testament, don't you? The figure of love for God as the very central part, in a sense, of our Christian faith. Paul writing in Second Corinthians, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. The relationship of love to God. If you love God, you cannot be loving these things as well. And you begin to be able to resist the subtle but deadly attraction and appeal of this fallen age. Now that's the first thing. Now the second thing is that the world is passing away. Do you notice that in verse 17? The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. You see, if you ignore this truth in verse 17, and you live as a playboy here in this life, where every passing fantasy of your mind is fulfilled, whether it's pleasure, whether it's money, whether it's possessions, whether it's illicit sex, no sooner has the desire arisen than it's gratified because you're living as a playboy. What happens? John reminds such a person that this world is only a vapor that appears for a moment, then vanishes away, and that you may gain the world at the peril of losing your own soul. This world and its desires, he says, are passing away. Or you don't heed this word of scripture and you live as someone desiring to be rich and famous and recognized and given the accolades of your position. And he comes and he says to you, remember the world today is gone tomorrow forever. And in the words of one of the commentators, Lenski, the world is passing away, he says, here is the siren voice of truth. The bank is breaking. Will you deposit your money in it? The foundation is tottering. Will you build your house upon it? The mountain is quaking and rumbling. Will you put your dwelling there? Will you spend your whole life pursuing 
the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life because when you die it's all gone the world is passing away but listen the new light is shining isn't it the man who does the will of god lives forever in the words of john newton's great hymn fading is the worldling's pleasure all its boasted pomp and show lasting joys and solid treasure only zion's children know now isn't that a grand pair of truths to hold on to as i am tempted through the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life as i am in danger perhaps this evening of being led astray by the enticing voice of an unregenerate world to know that if the love of the father is in my heart there's no place for love of anything else and to know that the world is passing away with all its facade of tinseled glory but the man who does the will of god will abide forever so the result my dear friends is surely this that i am to be in the world but not of it its gifts are to be enjoyed in a legitimate way but i am not to be enslaved or enticed by its fallen nature which is it to be for you this evening love for god or lust for the world because certainly the latter life holds within it as we've seen the seeds of its own destruction change and decay in all around i see oh thou who changes not abide with me the only permanence is to be linked with the eternal the one who does the will of god lives forever let's pray our father this evening we see perhaps with fresh light upon it the glory of this text and we pray that that ever present enticement and temptation around us and within us might be resisted by the grace of god and in the power of god and through the word of god that we might not be drawn into the service and slavery of things passing but going through this world as being in it but not of it we may walk as john desired us to walk as pilgrims on the way to the celestial city that permanent home that everlasting abode where only the will of god shall be done give us that vision of fresh our father this evening refresh us on this pilgrim path and grant that the lessons of tonight's service might remain with us and bless us to the glory of god and for jesus sake amen